All right, so today we bring about the topic of Chekhov's gun. Yes. Now, Han, why don't you just give us a little forward here? Because some people may not know the backstory and all of what, like the basic principles of what Chekhov's gun is. So, okay. So, essentially, a Russian playwright author at the end of the 19th century going into the early 20th, and really famous, particularly for his short stories. And I think there's also, there's actually one, I think, when I always think of Groundhog Day, it's it's one of the speeches Bill Murray gives at the very, toward the end when everyone's watching and listening. That's such a great moment. Yeah. And he even says when Chekhov, I forget the line that he says, but when he's giving that speech, that's who he's referring to. And believe it or not, he was actually, majority of his life, he was actually a physician. He actually went to medical school and he did kind of writing on the side as well on top of that, on be, of being a physician and a doctor. I think a lot of the most fascinating writers have had like multifaceted lives with like different areas of expertise. Oh yeah. Like, and that's, that always it puts me to shame in my own head because I'm like, man, I can't even... <laughs> I can't even. I can't do, even do one thing. Do, right? I can't do the one thing. This guy's. This guy's <laughs> being a doctor on top of it. Yeah, he's. He was actually. There's like a quote, and some of these quotes, I, I don't know if they're. They could allegedly be attributed to him or not. You know. Yeah. He's quoted as saying that he would say, "Medicine is my lawful wife, and literature is my mistress." Yeah. You know. So he practiced medicine, but you know, I guess his passion was more toward writing. And when he grew up, you know, uh, he actually came. I I believe. I know he grew up. They were still um in Russia at the time. There was still serfdom was still legal under under the czar and it was hard almost downright impossible to move out of that class and into you know something more profitable but he actually ended up supporting most of his family as best he could through putting himself through school and selling his writings to like local journals and newspapers and when he started it was mostly a lot of sort of comic writing i guess would be you know the best way to describe it you know short stories in journals which garnered him you know a lot of popularity and it wasn't until like a little bit later in life that you know he switched to more serious you know drama and would get some of the famous you know short stories and plays that i think maybe some people have heard of like the cherry orchard is one the seagull three sisters lady with the dog and a lot of what he did focused on making sure that everything that he put in it you know wasn't wasted there was no you know there was no sense of like fluff going on in the stories compared to other things especially since he was known for short stories well also during during this time period there was there was a lot of fluff going along and even shakespeare was guilty of this to some extent because a lot of things were pay by page so everything would pump up and writers would fill out so much material to just try and get mm-hmm. that page count up, and that that way they'd get a higher, yeah. higher and, payout. I mean, yeah, and if you compare him to like someone else of the time, like Tolstoy, you know, I mean, who's like if you've never if you've ever looked at like War and Peace or Anna Karenina or you know some of his books, they're they're pretty hefty, and that's not that's not a knock on Tolstoy or anything, but just to show a difference in in some of the styles between the two, Chekhov was really interested in like everyday life and like sort of the simple things especially with his plays later on there isn't a lot of focus on the overall plot of that you would see in a more traditional story it was more about the characters in a certain sort of everyday uh, situation and it was more about the internal struggle and the, the drama of their inner life that went on inside their own head 
and you know their own their own soul that he tried to focus on so you know sometimes you could you could argue that like if you read it today you might be like oh nothing happens nothing happens maybe externally or uh, you know on the surface but it's all about what the character is thinking and going on and so that's sort of i think you know uh, to make sure that everything you put there was there for a specific reason and that eventually evolved into one of the famous lines and quotes they call it you know in storytelling it's called you know Chekhov's gun or Chekhov's uh, dictum which often I've seen people heavily equate it to being a literal weapon yeah which is it's 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 meant to be taken in the metaphorical sense and a lot of it goes over a lot of people's heads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's mainly because the uh, quote that he said about it. Again, this is allegedly. There's not. We're not really sure, or at least not that I have ever come across. If he actually said it or not, or if he, I don't think he wrote it. Down. I think it was something more he said, and then someone else wrote down. But he was basically. It was if you say in the first act that there is a rifle hanging on the wall, then in the second or third act, it absolutely must go off great example of the literal is Shaun of the dead the the winchester the rifle yeah yeah yeah. that that is that is literally the quintessential Chekhov gun they they took it and played it in a a literal sense and it was it's one it's one of my favorite jokes from edgar wright no yeah in in Shaun of the dead that is pretty much the that would be the quintessential example in the sense that it it takes it literally and i i think obviously having seen you know a lot of their shows and movies i think they knew what they were doing when they did that because it's literally a rifle hanging on the wall and i've seen it's some i've seen sometimes the quote says it's a pistol it i've seen it change in terms of like how how it's said a little bit differently but it comes down you know to the same thing that you know every story needs to obey its own internal logic and you know i've also seen it i've seen characters be personified as the weapon also there's a great story um i'm sure you've seen and heard of the movie hannah Mm -hmm. where this little girl has been programmed to be a literal weapon, almost in like the born identity sense. Yeah. They constantly talk about how powerful she is, and then she finally goes off in the third act and causes all this mayhem, and it's like, okay, they're not... This is backed up. This makes sense. Like, Yeah. Yeah, no. And, uh, you know, it's it's just all going back to that idea of, like, if I'm going to put something in there, it almost has, like, that poetry to it in that, you know, I only have so much space and time to tell a story, so I want to make sure... That if I'm setting it up, that I'm paying it off correctly, um, and, and that everything I'm, has meaning. It's not just thrown in there for whatever random purpose that makes no sense to an audience. Yeah, yeah, and that's not to say that you know, again, any type of storytelling has very broad rules. There's no, there's no definitive. And essentially, there are no rules. But yes, to, to navigate and make things yes. more effective, it does help. You could certainly do. Whatever you want when it comes uh, to crafting a story. Exactly. But you might not get the turnout that you expected. You get too experimental mm-hmm. and you don't play by the rules enough, or you twist the rules in the wrong way, mm-hmm. it can put people off. Yeah. I've always said, like, if you're going to break the rule, make sure you're doing it for the right reason, you know? Exactly. Um, it has to be for a point. Yeah. There's got to be a reason. you got to make sure that... You can't just be contrarian to be contrarian. Yeah, exactly. Usually then it doesn't come off quite as well. And then sometimes you can always, like, subvert... You know the, the 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 classic subverting of expectations. That dangerous, <laughs> dangerous term <laughs> <laughs> that gets thrown around a lot. But you know, you can do that. People sure do love that one. Yeah, I've always said. Well, I, for me, anytime when I hear like subvert expectations, I'm just like, well, I feel like any good story should do that in some way. I feel like that's. Yeah, and I wholeheartedly agree. I just I, I get put off whenever it's done for the sake of doing. Oh it. yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, no, and that's if you're if you're intentionally trying to blindside your audience and lead them down an alley to shock and surprise them mm-hmm. for amplification of the story's point yeah then you have something but there's there's a lot of just throwing that terminology around just to (laughs) think you're sounding smart and no and that's you know i think that's like it just calls into you know the idea of like making sure that you are setting up and paying off anything of significance you know honoring the, the most powerful images that you give to a reader essentially don't waste their time or your own time yeah with the story make them feel like not just not just to make them feel like they've gotten gotten something out of it, but lead them to actually getting something out yeah. of it. Yeah. And and I think that, you know, can sometimes get, you know, a little lost sometimes, especially today I've noticed just for me, there are some things that you make the decision and you can always, like I said, there can always be those things where you throw in as homages to someone else or just, you know, something that you put in personally for yourself. And that's fine. But I would say the less you set it up then the, the less you should should expect, you know, your audience or reader to get exactly. from exactly. You know, there's always that that contract you give of any audience or reader as co-creator of whatever art form you're working in. And that's a great way to put it. It is it is really a contract by like setting these things up. Your your audience is investing their time. They want to know that this is all leading somewhere. That this is going somewhere. Mm-hmm. And in order to in order to keep them invested and make them not make them resent you for you know taking their time out of out of most in most cases for entertainment's sake, they they want to feel that this has all been for something yeah. and to pay that off you've led them to a place yeah exactly um good bad or indifferent you've taken them yeah somewhere. yeah and it's, it's not it's not so much you know how you're going to pay it off i mean and, and that is another thing you want to keep in mind but it's just the fact that you've 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 given something significance and you have paid it off and if you decide not to then it's you know there's a lot of times you'll see I would say sometimes when they don't pay something off, it could be for, you know, comedic effect or, you know, theme, stating a theme or something. I think some of my favorite examples are purely just for comedic effect. Yeah. And there, there's some there's a, like a thousand great examples. But um, one of my personal favorites, I'm, I'm a big uh, one of my big guilty pleasures is buddy cop movies. I love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just the, the silly, ridiculous scenarios. But uh, there's a great bit by Chris Tucker in Rush Hour Two, where he's, he goes off on this whole tangent of gambling, and he gets he gets all these wads of cash, and then he gets into a brawl with one of the main antagonists with a samurai sword, and he gets stabbed in the chest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it turns out that some of the money that he won at the tables actually saved his life and he's not just being this crazy crazy greedy pain in the ass yeah (laughs) no and that's and thank you benjamin and that literally is you know the essence of it on you know the smallest level yeah it can just be as as simple as as just to make you laugh setting up an object and then painting off and that's usually what it's equated to and i will say sometimes one thing that i you know had to get used to when i was learning about it is some people sometimes will confuse it a little bit with foreshadowing. Yeah, which is easily done because they're they're quite similar. Yeah, I would. It's hard to put a, and it's not always a clear line between the two. Yeah, the two can like be the same it, thing. It's hard. It's hard to put. Yeah, like a definite divide. I would say like Chekhov's gun is a type of foreshadowing. I mean, and but foreshadowing in and of itself um, is a little bit more, a little bit less direct. And when you're trying to really go for that surprise factor, whereas, you know, when you get back to uh, Shaun of the Dead and the rifle Mm -hmm. on the wall, when it happens, when you when you have the shot and they're at the is it the Winchester, the name of the yeah, the the pub that they go to. I just always know the pub. I just I can't remember the name when they show the 
image, be it, you know, conscious or not, you as the audience have essentially been like, okay, you're thinking that's that's going to been seasoned to understand it. Yeah. And that that's going to come back in some form or manner. Now, if you didn't imagine like if that scene at the end didn't have the earlier uh, setup of the rifle, you get more of a surprise factor, but it also feels it literally feels like the rifle comes out of nowhere. Now, perhaps Shaun of the Dead can get away with that a little bit more because it is doing it for comedy, but I feel like it would lessen the impact of how they did it the other way, going at, you know, following the rule of, of Chekhov's gun. Well, Shaun of the Dead particularly was pretty great at presenting these situations the same in multiple contexts for great effects. So yeah. it's like they show how mundane, like in the opening scenes of the movie, they show how mundane and zombie-like general populace is mm-hmm. and how like the apocalypse is very, very relatable to that in these yes. hilarious ways. So it's almost like it's comedy pays off and it's blandness in a lot of ways, which is which is what's so funny. And that, that's a big thing of like, you know, it's even just like the concept of telling a joke you know there's a setup and the punchline yeah and i think that's where comedy is is so good at specifically this story principle and Chekhov's gun is that you know you got to have the setup you got to have the payoff but then if you want people to laugh there's got to be something funny about it and that's very subjective for me anyway you know there's some people find something funny others don't Mm -hmm. so it it makes it you know even more challenging i think when you do it uh, for comedic reasons but yeah, it, it, it focuses on the smallest level. It focuses on usually some sort of object and giving you know the audience and reader notice about it and saying this will come back into play later on. But it doesn't always have to be with a particular object you can yeah it can be it can be anything it can be a social construct it could be a conversation it could be an entire character yeah who you thought was erased from existence or gone or what have you yeah no i you know i think it it definitely stems to something like when he mentioned um the idea of you know if you have a rifle hanging on the wall i don't think it was something that he he's coined for that phrase and like the the idea of it obviously bears his name but I don't think it was something that he he didn't create. It was there. He kind of just shone a light. Yeah, on. or at least one of the ones that got his name to stick to it. You know, and I think yeah. the, what he's talking about is essentially is is as old as like you know storytelling is in and of itself. He's talking about promise that you create, especially in the first act of any story that you write. You are creating this promise, this 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 contract, like I had mentioned before, with whoever is going to read it. You know, now, if you're obviously there's that question of, well, if I'm just writing for myself, is it then just with myself? That's possibility. You know, you know, you can write completely for yourself and then finish a story, tuck it away and then never look at it again. But if you're looking for that interaction with an audience, then definitely this idea of Chekhov's gun or, or the promise of storytelling, I think, is something that you always want to keep in mind anytime you approach specifically, you know, uh, a movie, TV show, a book that you want to write. Yeah, I was going to say, because the difference in medium actually takes a lot of effect there in terms of personal investment and w- actually telling a story because with filmmaking or video game crafting or you know board game crafting or any any more kind of intensive medium than just simply sitting down and writing for your own purposes it's just it you have more cooks in the kitchen than that and you have to satisfy these multiple creative visions and it gets inherently challenging to make a personal story in that regard yeah and that's essentially when when you brought up video games that's interesting that's one reason why i don't like for me i still you know people still there's still that debate 
are video games art are they not i i would say they are which i find to be a silly debate and it's it's tricky because video games really aren't for everyone yeah but, <laughs> but i think there there's some examples out there that kind of ironclad prove prove the rule you know it's so strange like you know when i was growing up i know video games are shown as like you know one person solitary experience sitting in a room just playing and i mean now you can have tons of people watch you with a camera, you know, and you can stream it live. Yeah, which has also been an interesting development. Yeah, so that's certainly changed a little bit. Uh, but for me, growing up, believe it or not, I remember, like, I had, when I was little, we had uh, the Sega Genesis, and then we had PlayStation 1, and then the PlayStation yeah. 2. We couldn't, we couldn't ever, that was always the thing, there was always, like, multiple competing systems at the time yeah and then the exclusive titles so it's like yeah. you can't and we couldn't <laughs> oh man i can't play that i'm on ps2 like <laughs> yeah we couldn't afford yeah we couldn't afford uh more than once we had to like you know it was almost we had to pick one so we had to like you had to pick your coordinate camp. with your friends which ones you're getting <laughs> yeah exactly you had to pick your camp and you had to become a staunch supporter yeah of that and so we had and that's that's a topic we'll we'll definitely i, yes, I want to do yeah no we can possibly definitely... a string of episodes on gaming yeah, for sure um but yeah, we had to, you know, pick which one we wanted. And when I was little, it was Sega Genesis. But yeah, it really was. It was like you had to commit to to your line. There. Yeah. And that was like, you know, and there was always like stories about, oh, this one's better. But anyway, for some weird reason, I don't know why, but like, especially when we would get permission to move the game system out from our bedroom into the living room on the main TV, that was like... That was like a big thing. Like that was like entertainment for the whole week. Yeah. And when we would do that, it actually brought my whole family together. It was like one of the weird moments when everyone would like show up either to either play with us or, you know, just to be like, what the heck is this? Or just like ridicule us and like, you know, teasing, tease us about, you know, these games and why we were playing them. Um, So that yeah. was always interesting. I thought, you know, video games and how they get that rap for being sort of a solitary experience. Video games also have a have a good reputation for being a large time suck. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you're unfolding them from a personal experience versus being a passive viewer of like a TV show, movie, what have you. Yeah. So you're taking up an active role and your exploration of the world tends to... So I want to say use the word dwarf because that's, that's not necessarily correct, but over expand beyond the storytelling aspect of what a game mm -hmm. can be so it adds to the time consumption it's just, there's so much to explore in a lot of these worlds especially games like destiny or last of us or a lot of these huge expansive worlds that you can really truly get lost in yeah and that essentially i, I think one of the reasons that some people sometimes have trouble or that there is still this debate about video games as art is it essentially goes back to Chekhov's gun law is, you know, get rid of anything that doesn't have to be there. Well, yeah. from from a video game standpoint, I it's it's almost like I encourage the the fluff to be there more because it's it's about kind of like exploring this open world. Yeah. And even though it doesn't necessarily have to be there to support the story, you know, having it there makes you know helps with playability even just from a logistical standpoint you know you want to make the game longer especially if you're charging someone you know 60 odd bucks to buy it yeah uh, you know they you want to try and like pump as much content into it as you can to get more use out of it so there's that and i think that's why a large a large degree story-based games have sort of fallen by the wayside and these big multiplayer experiences have kind of taken over because you when you remove the story aspect of it you're simply dealing with a world you can just get lost in and story tends to have a limitation to it oh no absolutely yeah um 
and I think that's where there was like the term it's called like ludo narrative dissonance. I, I forget who coined it, referring to video games and like the, the disconnect between telling a story and then having the gameplay. And I think that could be one thing that still hasn't been bridged yet. And, and maybe you can't bridge it. I don't know. But yeah, there's there is that notion of I would say rather than focusing on like a story itself in video games, I would say video games are much more character driven, which is kind of going back to what Chekhov always talked about in his short stories and plays is, you know, it wasn't it wasn't so much about the plot, but it was more about the character of the story and their internal struggles. If you look at that, I mean, a lot of video games that I love are, you know, essentially about the character. Yes, the story and the main plot are there and their place in it. But it, it all comes down to to that character, that person that you control, be it one that the game and the developers have made for you or one that you can create on your own, uh, you know, be it like an RPG. Yeah, that's the other interesting aspect is the crafting of it on your own. Yeah. Um, Take, taking up an active role in the path for this character and where they're going mm-hmm. and what they're doing. And while, yes, a, most games do put you on something of like a bowling lane bumper situation still leading you to the same end, yeah. it's like you have control of how how exactly you get there. And it, it, it creates for a deeper investment, I think, in a lot of regards. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think so, too. It puts It really puts you in that driver's seat and you're you're making these decisions as much as the character is. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's what's interesting about that. You could argue like that's the, the promise that, you know, the creators of a video game have with their audience. That's why I think a lot of people commit to it as a medium too. Like it's, you're looking at YouTubers now who've literally made a career out of investing in. Oh some yeah, of absolutely. Yes. And- invested in these games. Yeah. It is, it is almost type of uh, a new type of theatrical performance. It's a different one in its sense, but like every, anytime you watch someone have that playthrough, there's a different experience that you're, you're not going to get the next time you do it. Yeah. And that's essentially what the theater is, is every performance. It'll be most likely largely the same, but with that live audience or be it, you know, a streamed digital audience like on, you know, platforms like Twitch or YouTube. Yeah, that's a great differential between mm-hmm. theater and filmmaking also because you're getting variety and you're not you, – you, there's still possibility for difference in going to a performance live. Yeah. Whereas when you watch a show, it's almost purely from an analytical standpoint mm-hmm. because it isn't going to differentiate yeah. over time. And, and I think that, you know, holds more true to make sure you keep that, that promise between you – the creator and you know your audience and it's nothing and like i was saying before it's nothing new you know that Chekhov was talking about um it's been around you know for as as long as storytelling as we can think of you know if you look at uh, gilgamesh for example arguably mm-hmm. the oldest one one of the oldest known written works in human civilization you know written somewhere around you know 2100 bc somewhere around that time there's essentially that concept of we're going to we're going to tell a story, we're going to set stuff up and we're going to pay it off at the end in some way. It might not pay off in the way you expected, but it's going to be there. I don't know if anyone has knows Gilgamesh off the, off, off the top of their head or by heart. It's yeah, I mean not by heart off the head, but it's definitely a fascinating story and I think worth looking into. Yeah, and essentially, you know, the character of Gilgamesh is, you know, the king of Uruk at the time during um, early, you know, we're talking like the early uh, Babylonian Sumerian civilization. I could be wrong in the what ancient civilization he's attributed to, but we're talking Dogs the early and cats living together, <laughs> together mass, mass hysteria. hysteria. 
Um, but we're referring to like, you know, the earliest uh, civilizations, you know, essentially when the story is set up, he's this he's this powerful king of his city. And he's also like, you know, back then, you know, there was always like the, the idea that the main character had to be part God and part man. So he was like, you know, I think that there's like this thing where some parts of the story and I should also say that the story has been, you know, there's different retellings and versions of it some details can change a little bit and i don't think they've ever truly found all of it i'm not sure about that like because it was written in cuneiform on like clay tablets back in the day so i don't know if they have all of it preserved that i'm not sure about don't so no one get mad at me if i'm if i'm wrong on that please (laughs) please please don't but yeah uh essentially he's the king of uruk and he's you know part god part man He's a horrible human being. He just, you know, is oppressive to his people. It has way too many sexual advances on uh, yeah. women. Yeah, <laughs> that's so for, that's for sure. You know, so it it would definitely be a hard uh, movie or story to tell. I think in today's world, you'd have to be a little bit more conscientious of what you're doing. But essentially, the people of the city are essentially so fed up with him that they, you know, you know, ask the gods that can they do something? Can they can they can they change him? Can they make this better? And so the gods agree that, you know, okay, we'll we'll give you create a way to stop him. So they create another man. I always pronounce the name wrong. I think it's Enkidu, I think is the way that you pronounce it. I'm not 100% sure on the pronunciation. And they create him in order to stop Gilgamesh, or at least they create him to be his equal. And the journey that they go on together, essentially that first act with the people of the city, asking the gods to, you know, save them ultimately from Gilgamesh, they essentially give you know, the people of Uruk a promise that, okay, we'll we'll take care of it. And in the end, I don't not to give away the spoilers. I don't know. We, do we have, a, do we have, I mean, it's been around for 4,000 years but spoilers yeah, I, think, I think people will be okay spoilers <laughs> so there's a lot of different the story is long it's an epic poem essentially and there's a lot of different journeys and quests that Gilgamesh and Enkidu go on and take together but one of the main ones and you could argue each quest is sort of a different um, stage of life that you know you go through one of the main ones though is that um, Enkidu actually ends up dying and Gilgamesh is so like distraught over this that he and he's he's so fearful of death now that he wants to try and find a way to live forever. So he goes on a journey to, you know, find immortality and he ends up meeting um, eventually he has to go and talk to the Sumerian equivalent of Noah at in, in the story. The name, I forget the name, it's a very long name. It starts with a U, I think. I can't and I can't pronounce it. I might have to look it up. But when he meets the the Noah of this story, you know, he tells him that, well, if you want, he gives him a test. He says, well, surely if you want to live forever, then you can stay awake for one week. And says, if you can do that, I'll share with you the secret of immortality. Which I'm sure many of us know the struggles of trying to stretch a sleep schedule. Yes. Yeah. I mean. It's not a pretty situation. Yeah. Trying to stay awake for one day <laughs> is horrible enough. I tried to stay up for 36 hours last week. It didn't end well. Oh, no. What kept you up for that long? Oh, a little series called Dark, which I'll get into in a later episode. <laughs> um, That's a whole thing. That, that, yeah, that'll be that'll definitely have to be a whole thing. Um, but yeah, no. Essentially, Gilgamesh was you know given that task. If you can stay awake for a week, you'll you'll be given immortality. Well, he d- he fails it and has to sort of like come to grips with you know the the human condition and you know the inevitability of death but it's meant to it's it's meant to be taken in a positive way yeah and 
it is meant to show that, you know, to appreciate, you know, the richness of the present rather than concerning too much with past or future. And then upon that, he returns to the city, to Oryk as king, but he's a completely changed individual. And he stops being, you know, oppressive to the people, stops forcing himself on people, which is a good thing. And I think that's one of the most important things to any story or character arc Mm -hmm. is showing real genuine change. Yeah. And it, I, I, for me, it just it just calls into what what Chekhov was talking about with his Chekhov's gun. We look at it as a use for like an object or a prop. That's the main modern, I think, example of it. That tends to be the gravitas where it's where it's explained and focused. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think you can look at it in a broader sense in that it's it's talking about a promise that you have, and like the promise that the gods gave to in the story of Gilgamesh to help the people of the city and and stop him. It is paid off in the end, you know, but paid off maybe not in the way you thought. Like, you know, Gilgamesh is the one who is still alive, still living. But when he comes back to the city, he is eventually a very different person and would be considered a more just ruler than what he was prior. So there was that that setup, that contract stating that by the end of this story, Gilgamesh will have been dealt with in some way. Yeah. Um. So I just think, you know, it's nothing. It, it just you know, harkens to how old this concept is. I think could be said that it's just one of those universally accepted principles in storytelling that can be used for great benefit. And if you truly understand it, yeah, it can really, really improve your writing. Yeah. And I think that's one thing to always look at when you're doing any type of story is, is that promise, you know, you're going to give to the reader or the audience, whatever, you know, whatever you're writing, going in, knowing that. And it's also having an idea of knowing who you're writing for. You know, um, yeah, and it also forces you to think in the terms that everything I'm putting in here should have some level of importance. Yeah, and it's the basic principle: you just don't waste your audience's time. Exactly, with stuff that doesn't matter, and it, and it doesn't always have to be. And it's also, and in terms of like filmmaking, is filmmaking and being the most forefront. I think is just not to waste the resources of what you're working with. Oh yeah, especially during like you know filmmaking and TV because you're you're well on the clock there, um, and a lot of money financially for multiple people in many cases yeah and a lot of people have poured resources and money into that so yeah you've got to make sure that whatever we're filming and whatever we're putting up on that screen is is gonna have a reason even if the reason is simply to help with setting and you know the mood of a story or the simple the simplicity of a joke and levity and getting your audience to laugh yeah and it can even it can even be character building for the audience as well yeah and i think that's always some things that you know when you look at ones that like break it you know the Chekhov's gun it it can leave like that that sort of bitter sour taste in your mouth like when you see it you're like "Eh." yeah it seems like even lately there's been more and more examples of this too yeah one that I can think of and this is just off the top of my head going on now a year ago god is it a year ago already oh god um is is Game of Thrones and how there was a, a little bit of that fallout I feel like we're getting we're getting into this Way this later. Is that, this is that age-old term of uh, undermining your audience's expectations. <laughs> yeah, that subverting of expectations. Um, yeah. I, I think the reason that – I know for me, I, I wasn't too – one, there could be the whole like, you know, behind-the-scenes stuff that we don't know was going on. You know, who knows? Maybe, you know, there's been talk. There's there's definitely a lot between R.R. R. Martin – Benioff and Weiss yeah. that went 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 on behind the curtain that was that's fascinating to look on at on the surface. Yeah, from sure. what from what I can tell, it seems that like they like Martin and even HBO were like, hey, we can go a couple more seasons, but I guess Benioff and Weiss 
were kind of now we just want to end they, it they here. wanted their netflix deal so they, they wanted it so, so i mean i i want my netflix deal um yeah where's my where's my netflix deal <laughs> uh but i just regardless of that i think like when you look at the yeah all the, all that stuff to the side when you look at the ending and one thing that i'll put into play there is talking about it in non-spoilerific terminology i would say that you have all this character build up and all these these two main threads that lead all the way to the very end of the story that essentially crisscross one another and land Mm -hmm. opposite of one another and it's like your audience is just sitting there going this is so unsatisfactory this is not what i've been building up to for eight straight years and i just feel almost betrayed by the story in in a very strange way it's it's essentially and I think it calls into the idea of the more significance you start to give something, you better make sure you're going to pay it off well. So, like getting you're going to lead your audience down a path you don't want. Yeah, them to go. like if you compare it to Rush Hour example of Chris Tucker and you know the money in there, which has been used before, but like something like that, like if you didn't set it up and that's how he survived, you'd be like, oh, okay, well that was you know it would it would still break the the Chekhov's gun law. But I don't know if it would ruin the movie for me if that one little thing there, because it was such a small contained little incident. Yeah. You know, or likewise, if you have the money, show it and then it never comes back into play again, you could be like, you're left wondering, well, what was was that that about? (laughs) But again, for me, if they did do it that way, I don't think it would have a greater effect on the story as a whole i think it's i think it's easier to deal with in a movie yeah than it is to deal than, with an, than an epic tv show yeah no i series. think and that's one thing i think Chekhov's gun applies heavily even more so to a series be it a book series or a tv series because you have this long running narrative especially if you're going to do like a serial like game of thrones is where every episode leads into the next you can get away with it more in like episodic terms but you have this building momentum for yeah. years and years and, and i years. think and it's the, like you have to stick that landing or you're gonna make a yeah, lot of enemies yeah exactly and i think that's you know with not having too much spoilers i think if you look at john snow's story so much emphasis is given to it you know in, in every season and then i think when you get to the end the the payoff seems a little strange, if you will. And it's not its not a bad thing to go somewhere you didn't expect, but it does have to have some sort of impact, yeah. which it has to go somewhere. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> you I, I don't think just it, run the train off the end of the track. I, I think it just brings, gives you the idea and the sense that, okay, it goes back to what I was saying. Like, if you're going to break the rule or if you're going to try and use it in a different way, you want to make sure that you understand why you're doing that and if it could work. Just, you know, or the exception or accept the fact that if I do this, it could potentially have not the best results or not the results I'm looking for. Exactly. It's, it's a good like measuring tool, measuring stick, you know, that anytime like, you know, if you're going to like Chekhov's gun is a good way to gauge your story and sort of, again, that that promise that contract, that acceptance as, of audience and reader as co-creator of your world, because they're, they're bringing something to it that, as any creative type, you're not going to be able to always foresee. Like I, you're never going to be able to tell how anyone is going to react to 
to any story. Yeah, it's it's you can focus group things to death, but it's you, you eventually just have to get in there and do it. Yeah, and and you're never going to win. I don't think I don't think there's ever been any story that's ever won everyone over. I'm sure everyone has no. likes, dislikes, loves, hates, and and that's well because it's you get invested and you start looking forward, and your own imagination takes over, yeah. and your own expectations get formed, and then when things don't necessarily go the way that you thought they would, it's everybody thinks in in chaotically random directions yeah. for the way they think things will go so you can't align all that it's impossible i think just what the main point of it is that it can be used as you know just a tool to gauge how how much of a good payoff you can expect or reaction from your audience or reader based on what you've set up and what what you haven't what you've paid off what you what you didn't and then also keeping in mind the payoff itself too you know, if, if if I create something and I, I try to this brings into the whole like, you know, the, the red herring like idea, if I create something in order to throw you off a trail, you, you got to be careful with that because it can sometimes as it did in, in my opinion, in Game of Thrones, there was such a buildup with John's story and essentially you kept nodding to what was going to happen. Yeah, I think another good example to bring up, too, is J.J. Abrams and Damon Lindelof's Lost, which I think everybody on the planet was watching at the time, got into these crazy what-the-hell moments, almost like the end of every episode, and they keep stringing along these crazy questions, Mm -hmm. these mysteries, building up over long periods of time. They played with people's imaginations and emotions so much, I I think that almost nothing they did was going to fully satisfy everybody. And I think one of the things sort of breaks the rule there is... You know, you have certain aspects. For example, I think I can remember like the voices that people would hear um, in the jungle at night. And then it's not fully explained until the very last season. And it's kind of just kind of a quick explanation, you know. Yeah, and they also would do things that you would like think that these random voices would be the others that they have built up, and it turns yeah. out that that's not even remotely the case. Yeah, it's no, like, it's it's it, it's when you think you it's almost like you got, you went down these. I personally went down these spirals of thinking I had the explanation for things, and then getting getting them spun in a completely different direction. And then by the end of the series, I feel like I don't know anything that's going on, yeah. and it's um, just a confusing mess. And I think like also too, there was a lot of stuff. You know, the first season that was set up and then doesn't really get paid off until the end and again this brings up the idea like the more attention you give something and the longer that you're holding off on telling us what it is it gives it that more significance yeah it has a higher weight to yeah. it and you really like the harder it's gonna be like and if you can do it all the more power to yeah. you but you really have to stick that land yeah exactly so like and that i think you know whereas like you know so like the voices the smoke monster i'm trying to think of like some of the other ones there were so many great things in that series. yeah and it went to so many fascinating and interesting places and it touched on so many other types of storytelling like it has it has the jurassic park vibe draw it has all the mysterious island is just in so many different kinds of storytelling it's just like there's that's just just a great yeah. topic and a great place to start yeah working with and they had they had the bermuda triangle vibe of like yeah. all these different crashes and things pulled in so many great inherent pieces of storytelling in like the Henry Gale's balloon and like all these all these random crazy things in one spot it's it's such a great place to start yeah and even like you know yeah like you mentioned the island itself yeah is it's the island itself is a mystery yeah and which i guess you could i guess you could and it's still a mystery at the end i guess you could you know you can always keep it that way it's, it's you know there's nothing wrong there but i think it's just showing you that there is sort of that you know this for that type 
mentality with using Chekhov's gun. Like it's like I said, it's it's a tool and a way to gauge how well and what you can maybe expect based on what you've set up and how long you've taken to pay it off or not pay it off or pay it off in a way that is different, but maybe contrary to what you might have been going for. I think it's become very essential to TV, I think, among uh, obviously in everything, but I think it's become most important in TV because you have these long-standing threads that people want paid off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, like, over these years, people get invested in these things, and then they want to see these little moments and these little things come to fruition and actually take effect. And a good writer can take those things and fold one one plant and pay off into the next, into the next, into the next. And I think a good example of that is the Back to the Future trilogy, and yeah. it does this very, very efficiently. Even though that was never actually planned to be a trilogy from its initial creation. It wasn't planned one, to it, be a trilogy from the beginning? No, they, it was initial. like, the whole the whole moment at the end of the first one, I, I think, has been openly admitted as just being just a, way, a joke to, oh, really? to be a nice send-off. I never knew that, okay. It, it was a comedy. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. But after it exploded and became this huge global phenomenon, they really went for it, and they they folded it into this great storyline. And it's obviously again spoilers if you haven't seen if you haven't seen the forty year old <laughs> franchise <Right>. of <laughs> Back to the Future. Obviously, you cut away now, but they plant with the almanac. And Marty has this dark thought of, oh, I can make a quick buck. Yeah. And he folds that into, oh, well, Doc takes him and throws away the book and says, that's a bad thing. Don't do that. But then that turns into Biff hearing this whole crazy thought go into play. And then we get this whole tangential alternate reality where Biff has become this huge mogul billionaire mm-hmm. and has taken over the world. And then they manage to nullify all this and get the almanac and erase it. But in the process of doing that, they've now created this whole other thread, which becomes the entire third movie. Yeah. And they plant and pay these things off along the way so beautifully. And it's just this huge patchwork of restructuring everything and planting and paying off that it's, it, 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 the whole thing is based around that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, I mean, if you look at, especially the second and third movie, they are essentially, those two are working off of each other more so and that makes sense now because i never knew that it was originally only meant to be the one and then the other two kind of came later and i think that's large like a lot of trilogies ended up being that way that's why yeah. like, usually the first one is it's like it's, it's own standalone deal, yeah the two one the two following tend to be intertwined in a lot of ways yeah because once they see it's successful they oh okay we'll do this whole big thing here yeah and and that Again, the the bigger the scope of the story, the longer you want something to go before you pay it off, the more you have to accept, I got to pay this off right. The more weight, like you, I think you had mentioned before, yeah. that payoff is going to carry. So for like, you know, like you said, the Almanac in the second one, that's essentially one of the, you know, top driving forces of that of part two. And even and I think there's even another uh, a little setup and payoff that is played on Marty when he's trying to get the almanac back. And then Biff uh, switches it when he's in yeah. when, when he because he goes to Strickland's office and he thinks it's there. But it actually turns out to be I think it's just like a was it like a porn magazine that he's looking at or something. But he yeah, switched just like a like a like a uh, pinup girls. Movie. Yeah. And he he switched the dust jacket off of yeah, it. And it's this great little misdirect. Yeah. That like um, that you th- you as an audience member are sitting there thinking oh yeah he's finally got it back and then it's oh it's a quick reversal oh no so yeah it's a it's a good use of you know once again quick setup paid off and used 
um, to <clears throat> propel the story forward again and, you know, raise the stakes, raise the jeopardy of it, heighten the tension. So yeah. it, it can be used on the smallest level, uh, Chekhov's gun, and it's you can even take it to the highest level of storytelling, and that's the... You have these grandiose implications for every situation or involved in your story. Or it can be s- as simple as just a dumb joke to make you laugh. Yeah, and that's, yeah. So I think that's what's great about it is when you really look into it, it kind of is like an umbrella that goes over storytelling completely in terms of ways to make something work and to it's one of both the biggest and smallest ways you can expand your story which is what's i think so cool about it yeah and and to get an idea of you know what's going to happen when someone reads a story you know you could again you're not always going to know how someone's going to react but you can certainly get a better idea of how it might go down by using this this tool and, and understanding it and how it works so yeah, I think that's uh, that's Chekhov's gun for yeah. us. It's it's a pretty darn cool concept, and I mean anybody who's looking to write a story, it's definitely definitely worth researching. Um, yeah, and you know just just something essential, I think, and an essential tool for your toolbox um, as any creator or writer when it comes to storytelling uh, specifically. That you know, learn, master, and if you want to to break it, make sure that you understand why you're doing that. Uh, in the first place and make sure that it's like again for a purpose like don't ever do do something to do something yeah it's like the more purpose something has the more the more effect it can have exactly but yeah we're gonna we're, i think we're as we go forward we're gonna touch on a lot of these kind of topics and hopefully like anybody who's looking to get into either as simply as just playing a D round wants to craft cool campaigns yeah. or anybody who wants to write a script or come up with an idea or how to find a better way to do something yeah or how to ways to to shoot those scripts yeah i just i kind of want to find a, a a medium for helping people and generate conversations yeah. talk with people get gets gets get some information flowing so so yeah um look forward to more of this and uh we'll see you guys next time take care everyone no. Oh, there it is. Loud. Loud.